Well, we are on our first week of Advent, as uh, we have already shared with you. And Advent is a season of preparing our hearts. It's preparing our minds and our souls to be in a place where we're able to receive Christ. I actually love rhythms like these in the life of the church. I hear sometimes folks say, should we really be celebrating Advent? Is that something that the Bible tells us to do? Or something like Lent. Should we really be doing Lent? Is that something the Bible tells us to do? Well, not necessarily, but one thing we do see in the scriptures is that, especially among the people of God in the Old Testament, there were these annual rhythms that they had that were very almost ritualistic for them, but they were good for their soul. Every year they'd come and they'd make the trek across all of Israel to Jerusalem, at least the men would a few times a year, the men, women, and children would at least once a year, to come celebrate the Day of Atonement, to come celebrate the Passover, to come celebrate the, all the different festivals they had. And these were annual rhythms for them that broke the regular day-to-day life kind of rhythms. It, it broke it up and it reminded them that yes, you have your regular rhythm in work and family and children and community, but don't get lost in the everyday rhythm and miss God. Don't, don't, don't just think this is it. You actually have a much larger story that you're a part of. And so Advent is a season of preparation, and I, for one, am grateful that we're jumping into this. I want to ask you, as we begin this Advent season, how is your heart with the Lord? Simple question. You should be getting a question like that at least once a week in a sermon, but think of this Advent right now as a season to prepare your heart to encounter Christ in a new way. And as you enter into it, how are you doing? Are you in a season where you're feeling very near to the Lord, where you're sensing the power of the Spirit in your life and in your family's life? You're sensing a nearness to God, a a curiosity of the Word of God. You're seeing God root out habitual sin in your life and, and really establish a whole new posture towards areas of your life that you used to not be overly concerned with, but now you just want to bring about godliness in that area of your life. Are you walking in obedience with God? Are you delighting in God? How's your soul heading into Advent this year? One thing I wanna make sure we don't do is that we get through all of Advent, hear a couple sermons, go to a few lessons and carols events and just get through it as if we didn't have a chance to encounter God in a new way. Let's pause our regular rhythms and draw close to Christ. Over the next two weeks, we're gonna be looking at two different prayers that are part of the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. One from John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, and then next week, we're gonna look at just a marvelous prayer that was prayed by Jesus' mother, Mary, as uh, she prayed just this amazing prayer of a young woman praising God for letting her be a part of the story. Today, we look at John the Baptist's dad. And what I wanna do, we're gonna look at quite a bit of text, kind of a bit of the story of John the Baptist and his birth, And then we're going to focus in on particular chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, verses 68 to 79, that record a prayer that Zechariah prayed after his son was born. And I'm going to try to draw out three elements for us that, if we're willing, will transform our own prayer life. Three elements of Zechariah's prayer that, if we're willing and looking for a way to to change our own prayer lives, to resurrect our own prayer lives into something new and powerful, we can learn them from Zechariah this morning. So let me read to us his prayer from Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Starting in verse 67. And then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, now he's looking at his new child, John the Baptist, who is just born, a little infant. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The word of the Lord. Now again, I'm gonna try to show you three particular elements from Zechariah's prayer that I believe will transform our own prayer lives this Advent. And the first one is this. Zechariah prayed experientially. That's an important word. It's a word that we do not describe, define, and kind of infuse into the life of our church enough. But his prayer was experiential. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is his prayer was not only doctrinally sound, meaning it was theologically accurate, but it was, it was coming out of a place of personal experience. It was this incredible combination of his life and all that he was and all that he longed for and all that he desired and all that he thought about mixed with all who God said he was and all that God had promised and all that God said he would do in his life all coming together into one doctrinally sound but totally personal prayer to God. Those two things coming together in this prayer. Now in order to see that, in order to see that, you gotta know a little bit about Zechariah's life. So, Zechariah was a priest. We meet Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in the beginning of chapter one. And what we learn about Zechariah is that he was a priest. What that means is that he, he did work in the temple in Jerusalem. He was one of thousands of priests that were in Jerusalem at the time, all doing different chores and tasks around Jerusalem. They were the priestly class at the time. They were you know, performing the religious duties. And he was a high-ranking priest in Israel, which means that he would have had great knowledge of Scripture. He would have been privileged to have been trained in the word of God and in all the promises of God in the Old Testament. And he would have known them. And he would have been in a lot of those back door meetings and back, you know, back room meetings with the other priests where they were looking at scriptures and debating them and wondering what they mean and, and how they might be fulfilled. That was the life that Zechariah was a part of. He was saturated in the word of God. Now, you also have to realize, in, around the time of the birth of Jesus, that's in history what we call the Pax Romana. It was the peace of Rome. If you look at the, Rome, the history of the Roman Empire, there was a short season, which was the peace of Rome season, where it was generally, in terms of the Roman Empire of the day, it was more peaceful than other seasons. That's right when John the Baptist and right when Jesus were born. In fact, that's fulfillment of prophecy itself. But what you have to realize about the Pax Romana is that that came after 400 years of prophetic silence in Israel. 400 years without a prophet in Israel. Now, you have to bring yourself into a guy like Zechariah's mind to understand what that would have felt like. Zechariah knew all the promises of God. He knew what God had said God was gonna do in Israel, what God had promised he would do. But he lived in the season where for 400 years there was not a prophetic voice, no one speaking the oracles of God. Generation after generation coming, going, coming, going, telling of the promises of God in the past, but looking around and saying, 
doesn't feel like it's all that real. Do you ever feel like that? Think of Zechariah. During the Pax Romana, the Roman Empire uh, essentially treated Israel like a vassal state, if that's the right terminology. They, they, they had occupation over Israel. Israel was allowed to be Israel. The Jews were allowed to practice their religion in the temple. But, but the Roman Empire, much to the chagrin of the Israelites of the day, built a massive Roman fort just on the outside of the temple complex that looked down over the temple. So every time the Jews walked into the temple on that day, they had to look up and realize, that's right, the Romans have control over us. And they hated this. They hated it. And so in the midst of Zechariah's life, here's this priest who loves God, and he's wondering, when, when are these Romans going to be thrown off of us? 400 years of silence, God, where are you? But not only that, there's a little detail about Zechariah's life that's very important. Luke chapter 1, verse 7 talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, it reads this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, infertility is a painful thing. I get to a, a, an opportunity to minister to many families that have gone through this church who have struggled through infertility, and I can tell you that's a very painful thing. It's one of those hidden challenges in life that many people don't talk about, but those who struggle through infertility know the pain of that. Now, in this day and age, not only do they have the pain of infertility, but there's all kinds of cultural baggage loaded on top of an infertile couple. What does this mean about who you are? Is, is this because of sin in your life? All that kind of language and gossip. You can imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth, now an older couple in Israel, all they wanted their whole life was a child. And they don't have one. This is the mind of that man. And then we read Luke chapter 1, verse 12 to 17. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. He's in the temple, he's serving, an angel appears to him. Zechariah is troubled. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth." For he'll be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, let's pause. Just get into the mind of Zechariah. That must have been overwhelming. Imagine if you came into church on a Sunday morning and a big warrior angel right, appeared to you and began to speak to you. <laughs> that would catch you off guard a little bit. He must have been overwhelmed. But not only at the presence of an angel, but then at the message. You, Zechariah, are going to have a son. What was that speaking to him? That probably hit on some idols, some challenges of his own heart, that were very real and very painful, very significant in his life. It was unprecedented. And for 400 years, not one prophetic word, and now an angel's appearing and giving a prophetic word to this man. And his first response, he says to the angel, verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What's kicking in? Now rationalism is kicking in. Word of God, angel, majesty, mystery, incredible prophetic word coming from God. Rationalism kicks in. Don't you know how that feels? 
you have an experience with God that's just overwhelming, all of a sudden that, that part of your brain that just says rational, just think rationally. That was a little too intense. Just back it up to the real world a little bit. How can I know I'm gonna have a kid? My wife's, how old are they? We don't know, 70s, 80s maybe? They're older in years. Immediately, verse 64, his mouth was open and his tongue loosed. I'm sorry, uh, rationalism kicks in. And we're told that he was then mute. He was mute for nine months while the child was being, uh, while the child was in Elizabeth's womb. As a response for his doubting God, God punished him by being mute for nine months. Now again, imagine those nine months. Imagine what's going through his brain the whole nine months. He's watching his wife's belly grow with a child, fulfilling the promise that was. Not being able to speak, bursting, wanting to say all these thoughts he has. And then finally in verse 64, immediately after the child was born, his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And I believe what he spoke is what we have recorded here in verses 68 to 79. This incredible prayer. Now, this prayer of his was experiential. How? Well, let me give you five ways that I see it's experiential. Look with me. First of all, verse 68, what does he say? He says, you have visited your people. Why was that experiential? See, we can read this and just think, okay, this is a nice prayer that some guy in the Bible prayed. No, no, this was Zechariah's prayer. You visited your people. What did that mean for him? He had been waiting for 400 years for a prophetic word. He had lived in the silent years of God. 400 years waiting, and then God appeared, and now his heart is leaping. You visited your people. You promised you would, and you've done it. See that experience coming through that text? Verse 73, you delivered us from our enemies. What does that mean for this man? Here's a man who spent all his time in the temple precinct looking up at the Roman fort that was looking down on them, waiting for the day when Rome would, be, would come off Israel. Now, I think he, they didn't quite understand exactly the type of deliverance that God was going to give. Many of them thought he was going to deliver them from Rome. But, but he's looking up at this and he's saying, finally, the Savior's coming. See how experiential that is? These aren't just words. These aren't just cliches. This is his deepest longing coming out in a form of adoration to his God. Verse 76, he looks down at this baby in his hands. And you, child. How do you think that prayer felt for him? All his life wanting a son. All his life feeling the weight of being an infertile couple in that, in that season. And you, child. He had wanted that when he was a young man in his 20s. He'd wanted that when he was a man in his 30s saying God could still do it. Went into his 40s. Probably not gonna happen. 50s. Okay. 60s. It's done. Just letting that hope die. 70s maybe? And you, child, do you see the experiential nature of this prayer? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He just came off of nine months of punishment for his sin of not believing God at his word, not being able to speak. Nine months he had wrestled with the punishment 
that was his rightful justice for his not believing God at his word. God punished him by making him mute and unable to speak. And now he's saying, you forgive sinners like me. See how easy it is to turn that into a cliche and read over it as if it's just anything? No, this is Zechariah's prayer. Verse 78, you've had, because of your tender mercy... Now, this is the words of a man who's spent a lot of time in the scriptures and knows the way that God relates to people, knows the way that God has related to Israel over all those years that he was with them and just being tender with them in those Israelite wilderness years and being tender with them when they were in Babylon, but but maintaining a small few who believed in the days of Elijah. This is a man who's praying experientially. You're tender with us, God. You're merciful with us. Okay. It's Advent. And what I want to form in you is I want to form something, some kind of training for you in your own prayer life that we make sure we don't miss how to actually deepen our walk with God. We've got to learn how to pray experientially. Our prayers cannot just be cliches, and they can't be totally driven just by emotion. We have to let the, 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 the real-life scenarios of what we're going through meet with the reality of who God has said he is and all his promises of what he said he would do and then bring those together into one God-exalting prayer to God, just like Zechariah did. That's called praying experientially. It's not just driven by emotion and it's not just heady doctrine. It's bringing life and doctrine together into one prayer to God. Now, some of you might say, well, this must have been easier for John, right? John got to see it. He got to see his baby born. He got to see an angel. And if I had seen those things, well, then it would be a whole lot easier for me to kind of take my reality and submit it underneath the word of God. But Christian, you have so much more than Zechariah had. You have so much more than Zechariah had. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter one. It's one of those great prayers in scriptures. Paul prays for the Ephesian church and he prays, God, would they have their eyes of their heart enlightened that they might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Would they have the eyes of their heart enlightened Would they be able to see the reality of what you've done in their life? Zechariah got an angel appearing to him. And some of you have had visions. I heard last week a man from our church shared a story with me that he had a vision of God. God still gives visions. That's amazing. If you have one of those, don't ever forget it. You're one of the few that get that. Let that drive your faith. But every single person in this church, you got something more than that. Do you know that? What do you have? You, you have a savior who went to the cross for you, who led you to himself, who looked at your story wherever you were, whatever you were doing, no matter how deep your rebellious path was before that, led you to faith in Jesus. Some of you had stories you would never believe that would ever be a day in your life where you were singing worship songs to Jesus, yet here you are. You you were brought to faith in Christ. Can you believe it? God's done a miracle in your life. He gave you his Holy Spirit. He's leading you into all truth. Right now, as you sit under the preaching of God's word, guess what he's doing? He is working in your mind. He is working in your heart so that you can take the preached word and apply it in your own life. You can't do that on your own. You've got more than Zechariah had because the Holy Spirit's been given to you. See, See, Christian, your story is one 
And, and the Christian story is one. If we're going to pray properly, not, not just properly, but if we're going to pray in a way that transforms us, we've got to pray experientially. Your whole life, all of your experiences, God wants you to bring all of them to him. He's not sitting there being like, oh, she's bringing this to me again. He's bringing that to me again. No, that's not the case. But what we've got to learn to do is take our experiences and submit them underneath the word of God. Our experiences do not define what is true. Our feelings do not define what is true. God's word defines what is true. He has the final say on what is reality. And so we take what we see and what we feel, we submit it to the word of God, and then we let that grow out of us in an experiential prayer. That's how you grow in your prayer life. Number one, Zechariah's prayer was experiential. Element number two, Zechariah prayed the promises of God. Now these go together. The first point, Zechariah's prayer was, was uh, experiential. And the second, Zechariah prayed the promises of God. These go together. In fact, you can't do one without the other, but they're separate ideas. He prayed the promises of God. Where do we see this? Verse 70 as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. What's he saying there? He's saying, God, I know the word of God. You're doing now what you promised to do way back then when you spoke to the prophets. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Again, God, you're doing right now what you promised to do way back when in the word of God. Verse 73, to remember his holy covenant. This is interesting language in a prayer. He's taking all of his life, everything that's happening, and he's saying, I'm part of a way bigger story. And you made a covenant with your people, this this relationship that you promised you would do, and now, God, you're fulfilling that covenant. Number four, in verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham four times. He goes back and he brings his story and what's happening in that moment back into the larger story as part of his prayer. What's he doing? He's praying the promises of God. And he's finding his story as the, as the one link in a very long chain, which is God's story. And he's saying, praise God that I'm linked in. In each of these phrases, Zechariah is saying, I know the promises that you made, and now I'm praising you because you're fulfilling those promises in my midst. When I think of praying the promises of God, one of the pictures that comes to my mind is, um, is mountain climbers. I, I love watching YouTube videos of mountain climbers and guys who can do things I'll never be able to do in my life. Mountain climbing is amazing. But one thing I've learned about watching other people mountain climb is that uh, one of the dangers is that not every place you can put your hand is equally strong. Some places look like you can, you know, you're climbing a big rock face and you're halfway up and it looks like this is something you can really hang on. And so you put your hand on there, but as soon as you put a little weight, the whole thing falls away. And if you're not careful, what you'll do, if you're putting all your weight on a really loose bit of rock, even if it looks stable, all of a sudden it falls and your life falls down with it. And so what a trained rock climber is able to do is he's able to climb the surface of a, of a mountain. And as he's going, he's, he's feeling, is this as safe and secure as it looks? And he's got his ways and he doesn't trust it until he knows it's going to hold his whole weight. And then he can hang from it. Then he can stand on it. He, can, he knows it's going to support him. Now some of us, when we pray, our relationship with God is actually built on very unstable footholds. 
We're like a mountain climber, climbing the mountain in our prayer life, and we're climbing the whole thing, not realizing each of these are not, not stable rocks. And why? why? What, what is that? When our prayer life and our relationship with God is not built on the promises of God, but is built simply on hopes of what we're hoping God will do, that's very unstable ground. God, God may, God may answer some of the prayers you're praying in very clear ways that are exactly what you desire him to do. Hallelujah, praise God. He's so tender and merciful to us. He has done that in my life a thousand times over, and he will do it in your life a thousand times over. But my desire is not always God's will. You see that? And when we make, even when it, we blanket it in good bible language, our desire of how we want this to play out, a foothold, this is what I'm banking on, and I'm praying until this happens, I'm gonna hold my whole life on this, on something that God never promised? Ooh. See, then when that falls apart, all of a sudden you're falling down the rock face because you don't understand why didn't God come through on something you were asking. Well, you misunderstood how God works. God is not bound by your requests. God is bound by his will. What is a very strong foothold to climb that mountain on? The declared promises of God that are unchanging in the word of God. See, if you know the promises of God, then you can bring them into your prayer life as fixed footholds. Here's where I am. I'm hanging on this promise, God, right here. I'm not going anywhere. My foot's on this one. My arm's on this one. I want to get up there, but I'm not there yet. I'm just going to stand here for a second because the wind's blowing like crazy. The storm's coming in, and this is stable. Now, God, in the meantime, I'm also going to be asking for this and this, but I'm banking on this. You see the difference here? When you're praying the promises of God as he swore to our father Abraham, when God swears it comes through, when God promises it's unfailing, when he says this is what's gonna take place, that's something you can cling on to as a mountain climber going through your life of prayer. Now, sometimes we're tempted to pray for prayers that are actually unstable footholds. I think of Daniel's three buddies. They're a great example of this. You remember Daniel in the Old Testament? Daniel's three friends are getting persecuted for their faith. They're about to be thrown in a fiery furnace because they're praying to God. And, and as they're about to be thrown in, they, they speak to their persecutors these amazing words. They say this, they say, if this be so, if we must be thrown in the fiery furnace for our faith, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Notice the humility. This is the posture of a Christian when we're praying for things that are not fixed promises of God. My God is able to deliver in miraculous ways. I've seen it before. I'll probably see it again. But if he chooses in his sovereign will and knowledge of all things and how it all fits together to not give me this, to not deliver me from the fiery furnace, he's still good. And I'll never bow to that golden image. See, this is the heart of a Christian. We do not cling to the desire to get out of the fiery furnace. He may or may not deliver us. In this case, he did. In many people's lives over the course of the last 2,000 years, he didn't. There have been more martyrs in the last 10 years than all Christian history combined. What were they clinging to? The fixed 
promises of God. Now, some of us don't pray the promises of God. Our own prayer lives are, are, are it's, it's a string of, it, it, God is like our, uh, our diary, just bringing out our, our emotions. And that's, that's fine. God, God is pleased when you come to God like that. But I wanna bring us to somewhere new. I, I want you to deepen your walk with God this Advent. What are three reasons that people don't pray the promises of God? For some of you don't know the promises. You just don't know them. And, and you wanna know how you get to know them? You pick this book up and you start reading it. And as you go through it, you keep a couple note cards on your desk. And whenever you come across a promise, you write it out. Then you put that note card in your pocket. And when you're walking down the streets of Chicago, you pull it out and you memorize it until it's in here and until it's in here. It, this doesn't just happen. There's not some miracle where suddenly you wake up and you know the promises of God. You gotta work on it. You gotta learn them. Just like when you're a kid in school. If you don't learn it, you don't learn it. And you get an F on the test. If you memorize them, then they're locked and loaded. There are countless promises to hold on to in your Christian walk. Number two, some of you don't pray the promises of God, frankly, just because you're unconvinced. You're not really sure it's real. You know? And that's revealing some, some deep idols in your life. You know, God, God for you in this whole story that I'm preaching today, when you think of all that God's done, it's kind of like chalked up with, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware. It's like, yeah, I'm sure it happened in history. There, I've seen the paintings of it. I know it happened, but what does it have to do with my real life right now? Sure, I'll come to church on Sunday. I'll hear the stories, but look, I've got to pay the bills. I've got to get my kids through school. I, right? And so that's over here. That's fine. I've got a compartment for that. But the promise is, how do they help me right now? And you're unconvinced that they're meaningful for your life. In that sense, you're kind of like the, the people of Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness. They just got delivered out of Egypt. All the signs of God passing through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. And what's the first thing they do? Their bellies are a little bit hungry. And they start remembering, oh man, all I can see before me, I just need some bread. Listen to this, Exodus chapter 16, verse three. And the people of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses, have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They forgot the very things God had told them to do. Why? Because the, the, the sense of the urgent, I need bread for my family, was blinding them from the greater picture of all the promises of God, what he had already done and the promised land he had promised to give him to. And some of us are just unconvinced, just like them. God's got these promises of where he's taken us. It's as solid as gold. It's, it's not gonna change. And yet the urgent, I gotta pay the bills. I, I, gotta, I, I, gotta, I have this situation I'm going through. It just clouds us. We're like the Israelites. Now third, some of you are in such a dire situation that your emotions are so strong right now that all you can do is fall at the feet of Christ and just share what's going on in your life. And to you, I wanna minister very carefully and tenderly today and just say that God delights in coming to Christ and just bringing everything you're going through. But I actually believe for you, if that's you in this room right now, that the true power to bring you through that trial is actually in learning to pray the promises of God. That's where the joy is. Let me give you four examples. Just, I'll give you some things. These are my own, these are promises I pray regularly. I'm gonna share them with you. I've shared them with you before in sermons. First, 
Some of you might be in a tiring season, a season where you, you feel like you're, you, you're lacking strength to do what you need to do. You're lacking diligence for God. You're lacking maybe even a sense of a lack of holiness. Um, and what you really are asking for is you really need renewed strength. You need God to come into your life and just kind of zap you and give you new motivation because for whatever reason, you've just been kind of lazy with things and, and you need to get after it again. And it's been a while since you have. Oh, pray this one. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, that's a good one. They who wait on the Lord. So here's how you pray that. God, I want, teach me to wait on you because I want to I wanna mount up on wings like eagles. I want to run and not grow weary. Lord, I'm not doing that right now. And maybe it's because I'm not waiting on you fully. So teach me, God. Do you know how God delights in responding to that prayer? He promised he'd respond to that prayer. He delights in it. Bring that prayer to God. Hold on to the promise of God that he said he would do it and then keep praying it until he does it. How about if you're truly lacking a sense of holiness in your life? Maybe, maybe you've fallen into sin. You've fallen into habitual sin and, and you hate it and, and you just keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Maybe it's any kind of sin in your mind or in your heart or maybe in a relationship with somebody. I love this one, Hosea 14, verse five. I will be like the dew to Israel. They will blossom like the lily. They will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. It's almost poetic language, but what's it saying? It's saying God is going to bring fruit in our life. They'll blossom like the lily. Your life's gonna be beautiful in Christ. And you're gonna take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Those were the most famous cedars in all of history. Big, big trunks, deep roots, strong trees. That's what I want to be. I want to be a man of God that's just a big trunk. You can't push me if you tried. Bring a chainsaw. You got to buy a bigger one. That little dinky thing won't chop me down. Why? Because I got roots so deep. They're just deep in the soil of God. And when you fall into patterns of sin, what do you need to pray? God, you said you will be like the dew to Israel. And that they'll blossom like the lily and take root. And I don't feel like I'm a very deep root right now, God. Would you make me into that? Watch how God responds to that prayer. See, this is hanging on promises. This is how you do it. You find a foothold, you grab a rock up here, and you start praying that. And then all of a sudden what you realize is, oh, there's another one up here I can climb up to. And now you move past what you were at, and now you're climbing a little further up. Some of you are in a time of deep struggle maybe even danger and challenges in your life. Maybe something's going on in your life that, that's so pressing on you that you actually have a sense of dread in your life right now. You just don't know how it's gonna go. Here's one. Isaiah 43, verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Hmm. That's a precious verse. God desires to walk with you in every circumstance. He desires to be there with you from the beginning to the end, all the way through. He's gonna walk you through death itself and you will not be overwhelmed. Why? Because your God is sustaining you just as he promised. 
your God's gonna walk with you and give you everything you need through every trial you go through because his burden is easy and his yoke is light and he loves you and he's tender and merciful towards you. Even in the darkest and hardest trial of your life, hold on to that promise and you keep repeating it until you believe it, until your life circumstances flowing with joy even in the midst of trial. How did Paul pray? Consider it, how did he say consider it pure joy when you experience trials of various kinds? How did he muster the strength to say that? Consider it pure joy when you experience trials? Well, he knew the God who said he'd always be with him and that the flame would not consume him and the rivers would not overwhelm him. And he had prayed that prayer when he was thrown in jail, when he was lashed to a, to a Roman guard. One more. How about when you've tried sharing scripture with somebody or sharing the gospel with somebody and you feel like it just was, it went nowhere? and you feel like you wasted a good opportunity, you just didn't do a good job. Well, this is one I pray almost every single week when I get up here. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in that for which I sent it. You use the word of God, God's gonna do exactly what he needs with it. You share the word of God, you might feel like a failure in that moment, guess what, you can't fail. It's impossible to fail. You can't fail because so shall his word be that goes forth from his mouth. It will succeed in that for which he sent it. It's going to accomplish his purpose even when you can't see it. So be bold in the way you share with your family. Be bold in the ones you talk about Christ with your loved ones because you never know what God's doing behind the scenes. He's working that seed into their life. I love one of my favorite writers, William Spurstow. He, he says this about God's promises, very wise counsel. He says, God and his word... God has, in his word, recorded the promises as so many discoveries of his immutable counsel and purpose that thereby faith might have a sure ground to rely upon in all exigencies and to expect a relief from him. But the season and time of performance God has reserved to himself. So he's saying, when and how God's gonna answer your prayer when you pray the promises, that's up for God to determine. As best knowing not only what to give, but when to give, so that believers though they may plead to God his promise, must yet be careful not to confide and limit him to times which they judge fittest, but wholly to resign themselves to his wise disposal to whom every creature looks and receive their meat in due season. How do you pray the promises of God? You cling to it, you find your footing, you hold on to it, and when the storm's threatening to blow you off the side of the mountain, you just hold you hold, you hold your ground on those promises. And in good time, you watch as God delivers you. And then you find another promise and you keep clinging. You pray the promises of God. Let me close on this third point. I'll keep this brief. Zechariah prayed victory in Christ. You wanna, you wanna resurrect a prayer life? You, you, you need to learn how to pray victoriously. Victorious praying does not just mean that everything is just always good and golden and you're not in tune with the reality of how hardship is, how hard life is. But victorious prayer is seeing exactly the larger picture of what God is doing and knowing your victory is certain. Knowing, knowing that whatever you're going through right now, that is not the end of the story because God has a much larger story that you've been grafted into and you can't help but be excited about what God is doing. Verse 71, Zechariah says that we should be saved from our enemies. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This whole prayer, what's this whole prayer about? He's, 
He's overwhelmed by the reality that he's having a son who's going to prepare the way for the Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what the prayer is about. And it's saturated in optimism. It's saturated in this almost excitement about what God's about to do in history and that, that he's stepping in and doing this work. Christian, that is your story. Christ went to the cross for you. And that is not a light thing. If your faith is in Jesus, every sin's been done away with, past, present, and future. You are no longer what you were, but he's caused you to be born again. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. Think of those words. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you ceased to be who you were. So whatever your story was, whatever your your wiring was, in Christ, you're a new person. And now he's sealed you and seared you into the family of God, and he's writing a story that will culminate in his return when he establishes the final heaven on earth. And between now and then, he's building his kingdom, and he's called you an ambassador for Christ to carry his word to the nations, to be light in the darkness, so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, his elect from the four corners of the earth, will come and gather before the throne of God in the proclamation of the glory of Jesus. That's your story. That's what you're, that's what you're written into. Now, when you're, when you're in a moment and life is weighing down on you and, and, and you're just feeling all the dread of it all, bring that to the Lord. But then in that prayer, don't stop there until you've prayed victory in Christ and you've allowed God to take that narrative and show you your place in the bigger story. Your story is one of optimism. Don't ever just lose sight of what God is up to. Pray victoriously in Christ. Now, let me close by bringing us back to where we started. How's your walk with the Lord this Advent season? 2023, it's Advent. This is your moment, Christian. This is your moment to break from the regular rhythm, do something new that's gonna permit God to to change you and transform you so that you don't waste a whole month of what should be growth in your faith just to go through all the marketing of Christmas. No, we wanna see transformation. How's your walk with the Lord? We gotta pray experientially. We gotta pray the promises of God and we gotta pray the victory of Christ. You pray with me now. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, for the blessings of your word and the way your spirit works in each of us. And God, I pray that as uh, we now enter into a moment of taking the communion meal and having a season of prayerful reflection, I pray that your word would take anything, your, your spirit would take anything that was shared that was of you today and do a new work in us. Bring transformation, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.